Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Mark Scandrett, and I'm really glad to be here this morning, and I'm actually um, all weekend exploring this theme of transformed families. Uh, I want to show you a picture of my family in a minute. Uh, I've got a wife, Lisa, who's here with me this weekend, and we've got three young adult children, Haley, Noah, and Isaiah. And um, uh, don't let it fool you, I'm standing on a tree stump there in the picture. I, my two sons are six foot four and six foot seven, and so I look like little dad in comparison to them. Uh, we live in San Francisco, California, but Lisa and I are, both have roots in, um, in the Midwest, and actually when I landed in Denver on Friday, I got a little choked up because the last time I was in Denver, I flew in to drive to Rapid City, South Dakota, which is kind of my ancestral land where my mother and my grandparents all lived uh, to celebrate the life of my uh, grandmother who had just passed. Uh, Lisa and I work with an organization that we co-founded 20 years ago called Reimagine, and it's inspired by Jesus' message of the kingdom, and uh, basically, we're very passionate about helping people put the teachings of Christ or integrate the teachings of Christ into everyday life. And so our work started in San Francisco, but over the last few years, it's taken a global turn. And so I spend time each year in uh, the UK, uh, I'll be headed to Scandinavia tomorrow, uh, Australia, Bangladesh, and East Africa. And um, so I'm actually going to use some of the funds that you guys provided us this weekend to get me to bang back to Bangladesh to be training some pastors. And... Um, when, when I got here this weekend, I realized, wow, there's a lot in common with um, South Fellowship's language and some of my passions. I wrote a book one time called Practicing the Way of Jesus. I'm not going to charge you for um, like a, a royalty fee on it, you know, for your, for your tagline, following the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And, and maybe it's, this is just what's brewing right now, this longing among God's people to say, we want to not just believe in Jesus, but also walk in his way. And so some of what I'm going to be sharing this morning comes from a couple of books that I wrote that are available here today. And last, yesterday, we got to spend uh, time with moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, and kids talking about family thriving and exploring that over about uh, six hours yesterday. We had an amazing time sharing hearts and doing activities and um, looking at God's vision for how we can be transformed in our family life. So what I'm going to be sharing this morning is just a little taste of uh, the depth of what we explored uh, yesterday. I have found that when, I when, when the topic of family comes up or the topic of community, often it kind of provokes us. And let me just say before before I go on, when, when we think about transformed families, I want you to have in mind the various kinds of family relationships that you've experienced. So, each, so you might, as we explore this this morning, be thinking about the family of origin, the people who you, the family you were born into or the people that um, you grew up with. And then you might think about uh, the, a family that you helped create or have been a part of. Um, as well. And then you also maybe want to think about the broader picture of what family and community looks like, including your um, faith family relationships as well. But I find when, when, uh, when, when you bring up the topic of family at a dinner party or uh, in a conversation, it often stirs up a couple of 
almost contradictory emotions. For some of us, when we think about our family and community relationships, family and church, oh, there's these warm um, feelings of closeness, this reminiscence about um, ch cherished times in the past. And hopefully, even if that wasn't your family experience, you can look back and find a few ex uh, uh, instances where you felt kind of that goodness of being close with other human beings. The other thing that often comes up is, um, is some more difficult emotions about family relationships being a bit more conflicted and complicated, and also faith re church relationships that feel the same way, where, wow, um, I'm connected to these people, but I don't, they don't always make me feel good. I don't always feel close. And we, so we feel the pain of our, our, and disappointment of what we hoped for in family. Some of us, this is, this, um, maybe all of us to some extent experience a bit of trauma in our closest relationships that in order to really thrive in our walk with God and our flourishing and connections with others, we need to work through in, in that process. I also want to just put a context out there and say that um, our culture tends to cre create some idols around family. For thousands of years, human beings have said family first and put the people that they're related to by blood and marriage over the needs of others. My tribe, my family, my people, and if you're not one of us, you're over there and we can take your land, we can um, um, you know, mis misuse you, it's, uh, it's only us first. And uh, one of the interesting cultural examples of this uh, I found recently, I, uh, we were talking about this uh, last night about our, we both watched Breaking Bad, and, and um, one of the characters in this, um, in this series, if you're not familiar, his name is Walter White, a mild-mannered high school chemistry teacher who finds out he has cancer, and um, he wants to take care of his family, that's what he says, um, but he gets a taste of some excitement and power and ends up becoming a methamphetamine kingpin. And he keeps this from his wife and his children, but at a certain point, his wife Skylar becomes aware of something sinister going on and confronts him about it. And he, in their argument about this, says this, hey, whatever I did, I did for the family. And it was sort of a mic drop moment. Like if you say you're doing it for your family, you can kill people, do illegal activities, you can um, ignore them, be emotionally absent because you're a provider. And so um, I hope you're hearing along with me that the gospel invites us into something more whole and, um, and good than, than these less than versions of tribalism that can sometimes happen in, uh, uh, in our culture about family. The Bible has some interesting things to say about family. Quick survey of what, of what we see as examples of family life in scripture. Let's start with the first family mentioned. Um, uh, Adam and Eve, and they had uh, first two, their first two children were Cain and Abel. One of their sons killed the other son. So if no siblings in your family have killed each other, you are, you are part of a healthier family than the first family on planet Earth. I hope that's encouraging to you. Uh, we go on to the, um, the Abraham's family. As he's traveling, his wife's very beautiful, and he's afraid that the rulers of the places they visit might 
steal his wife from him. And so he tells them all, this is my sister. I'm pretty sure that Abraham spent a lot of time sleeping on the couch after doing those things. Um, and his sons learn the same habits. And then um, we get to King David's family, and one of his sons rapes his sister, and another one of his sons kills the brother who raped the sister. And um, even Jesus had struggles in his family of origin. And so what I, what I get from this is that Scripture is realistic about the pain that we can experience in our closest relationships. But I hope to convince you this morning that scripture is also hopeful about the possibilities. Uh, with the coming of Messiah, um, Jesus and Jesus' announcement of the kingdom, um, it invites the possibility that there's a whole new way of being a human being. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And so we can expect that as we journey further into the way of Jesus, we can see healing and wholeness come to, um, to our family and community relationships. There's even a prophecy about this in the book of uh, Malachi where it says, um, when, when Elijah returns and Messiah comes, he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. I want to focus on one um, portion of scripture this morning that um, probably is what we know most about Jesus and his relationship with his family. Uh, Jesus is um, doing his ministry and he has is with his disciples and he's healing and he's teaching and his, um, his mother and brother show up and think, Jesus has lost his mind. He's not even stopping to eat. He's so, he, his life is so full. And so it says his, when his family heard about this, they, they went to take charge of him, and they said, he's out of his mind. So if you've ever been misunderstood by people in your family, you're in good company with Jesus. It's not only that, but Jesus' spiritual community, his, his faith community, also thought he'd gone crazy and even said that he was demon-possessed. The teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, something's wrong with this guy. And so when Jesus' mother and brother show up, someone comes to Jesus and whispers to him, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus look, stops and he looks around and he says this, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will, uh, God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus, in a sense, is redefining what family is. It's not just the people that we are related to by blood or by marriage or ancestry that he's inviting us into the new family of the kingdom of God. And that's why I love it that um, sometimes in faith culture, when we see, when we, when we greet someone, we say, hey, brother, how's it, how's it going today? Hey, sister, good morning, right? And that's a reminder to us that we have become part of a new family together. Amen? Amen? All right, sister. So um, at the same time that Jesus was redefining his family, he didn't say, well, forget about it. I don't have to care about those people that I'm related to by blood anymore. And in the, um, the, pic the picture we get of this comes from John 19, where Jesus is up on the cross, about to give his life um, out of love for, for all of us. And he looks down, and as the oldest 
son. It's his responsibility in his culture to care for his aging mother. Um, apparently, that, that family had some trauma because Joseph, um, from the, after the time Jesus was 12, isn't mentioned again. And so maybe um, he wasn't part of the picture anymore. And he looks down and he thinks, I'm not going to be able to care for my aging mother. And so he says to his friend John, essentially what, it, what these words mean is, John, look after my mom. And from that time forward, John took Mary into his own household to care for her. So one thing I like to say about all of this is, whatever your family and community experience has been up to this point, it's not the end of the story. We have a lifetime to work out our relationships with those we're related to and those we love and seek God's healing and wholeness in those relationships. And over and over again, I love kind of collecting stories of people who started off with pretty painful family experiences. Uh, One of the people that we wrote about in our book, Belonging Becoming, is a friend of ours who we met when she was uh, 11 years old, part of a family that was was, uh, low income and had a lot of struggle from um, generational abuse and poverty. And uh, when she was 13, uh, her father physically assaulted her. And um, as a result, her and her siblings were removed from the home. And um, that was her story about family. In her mid-30s, as she was raising two children of her own who are on the autism spectrum, her father got into recovery, reconnected in his his relationship with God, and she said, my father has become my primary spiritual and emotional support. He's becoming the father that I never had. And so I love it that we can... um, that no matter what our experience has been, we can hope for and work towards seeing newness come in our, in, our, in our family and community relationships. There's a wonderful text from the Psalms about family that says, God sets the lonely in families. Uh, I, I had a friend one time who said, um, uh, I really celebrate my family. And I said, wait, are you, what are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, I'm talking about friends who are like family. And maybe that's another way of talking about the new community of the family of God that we're all a part of. Um, I Often when I travel and I listen to people talk about their, um, their kind of questions about relationship, um, I hear some interesting things. And something I often hear is um, from different parts of, say, a community like this. Um, a, a, a single person... A widowed person, a divorced person will say, I feel on the outside of what's happening in the community. It seems like every, everybody else has those kind of relationships and they have somebody to go have lunch with and things like that. And I think that we can, we can do a better job in our faith communities of recognizing um, the variety of life experiences that people have. And each person in this community should have a place to go on holidays and um, on, uh, uh, for meals and for community and to learn to create that new kind of family together. I know um, when, when um, I've, I've, had, I've had people who are older than me who have been like mothers and fathers to me, and I'm very grateful for that. They were able to care for me in ways that maybe my, um, my family of origin wasn't able to care for me, and so we can look for those people, those of us who are 
our, our parent-like or older people, we can be looking at folks in our congregation, your congregation, and think, how can I be like a mother or father and a care and a support to, to people who, who feel alone or didn't, didn't have a, a positive parental experience? The irony is, if you talk to um, even, even family people, married people or people with children in a faith community that, like this, they will say, I also feel lonely. I remember a time before I was changing diapers and having to drive kids to soccer practice when I could meet together with other women or other men and share my heart and be a part of a community group, and I have no bandwidth for that anymore, and I feel alone too. And so maybe we can have an empathy, all of us together, to say every single person in this room has a longing for connection, so how can we, um, how can we reach out to each other? And part of that is putting yourself out. Instead of saying, why aren't people, um, why aren't people being more friendly with me? Because that's never a good posture to start from, right? Uh, the, the proverb says, if you, wanna, if you want friends, be a friend. And so be open-hearted with other folks in this community. Express your need. Say, I, I, I'm longing for more connections and see what happens. Anybody gotten a picture like this before? I get them, this is a picture I got from my daughter Haley. I get them from my nieces and nephews. I get them from uh, my downstairs neighbor, um, the two little boys that have lived downstairs from me. Kids are trying to figure out what it means to, who, who am I connected to in life? And I want to give you a sort of a definition of what I think a thriving community and um, family might be. A thriving family or community, a transformed uh, family and community, is a place of belonging and becoming, where each person feels safe, cared for, and loved, and supported to develop who they are for the good of the world. And what I just want to note is the kind of inward-outward trajectory of this. Each of us as human beings need spaces where we feel safe, cared for, and loved. And we can be that for one another. But it doesn't end there. We long for that, and as we experience it, it empowers us to not be selfish about it, to not be inward looking, but then to say, how can I seek the thriving of all families and people on earth. So it's not just about me and mine. And this is the invitation of the gospel that we're being invited into the healing and restoring work that Jesus called the kingdom of God to see the renewal of all things. And that's an exciting thing for us to be a part of together. So um, I think Jesus has the way for us to experience that kind of transformed relationships that we so long for. And I love it where the Apostle Paul says in Eugene Peterson's version of this message, um, parents, don't, don't frustrate your kids, but take them by the hand. Lead them in the way of the master. Jesus has a way of life for us that I think uh, the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount give us a picture of those life-giving ways that will transform us. It's a, a little known fact that somebody by the name of Mahatma Gandhi, who led a very important liberation movement in, in, in South Africa and in his home country of India, he was not, he didn't identify as a Christian, but every morning he got up and he read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. 
and a missionary to India who was friends with Mahatma Gandhi made this comment about that and said, a little man in a loincloth in India picks out from the Sermon on the Mount one of its central principles, applies it as a method for gaining human freedom, and the world, challenged and charmed, bends over to catch the significance of that sight. It is important of what would happen if we would take the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to the whole of life. It would renew our Christianity. It would renew our world. In other words, if, if a person who doesn't even identify as a Christian would, would pay attention to what Jesus said, imagine what would happen if those of us who have said we want to follow your way would take him as seriously and what that would do to transform our families, our communities, and our world. So this morning, I want to point you towards three things from the Sermon on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that might help us practice or follow the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Do I get extra five cents for that? So the first one is this. Uh, I wish I could talk through all nine of the Beatitudes this morning. I had to pick three. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. So I forgot to mention this earlier, but I'm hoping we can do a little bit of an interactive talk this morning where it's not just one way. And so I'm going to invite you as we explore these three Beatitudes to, um, if you're able at some point to stand up, to do some things with your arms and your eyes, and um, to engage with each other in some small ways. Would you be willing to take a little bit of a risk with me to, um, to, to help me do this talk. Can you give me a thumbs up? All right. I promise it won't be too scary. And you'll actually remember this message and be able to carry, carry its, its teaching with you more if you'll, if you'll um, be game to do this. Blessed are the merciful. So mercy is not our default position in our relationships. We have this instinct when we look at other people to look with eyes of judging. So I want you to put your hand up like this, and this is an eye towards measuring. Is that a good person or a bad person? And am I a good girl or a good boy or a bad boy? Um, who's doing what's right and who's agreeing with what I think? And our minds are fixed and some would even say it's how we develop our sense of a moral compass is by making assessments and judgments about people. So I want you to take a minute and just scan the room in this posture of judging, measuring other people. It might have been necessary to do this, but it becomes toxic. So I want you to slap down your hand. Sermon on the Mount says, Jesus says, stop judging. Do not judge. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so the heart transformation that the gospel invites us into is instead of looking with eyes of judgment, we switch to eyes of compassion. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand up with me for a moment. And I want you to make the shape of a heart with your hands. And I want to remind you that when the creator of the universe looks at you, the creator doesn't look at you like this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And um, that, that your, your creator sees the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you is not that you failed, 
Not that you're a sinner, but that you are beloved. And so we, we often need some help to remember this. And so I'm going to invite you, come, come up towards me if you would, brother. I, I, don't know if, I don't know if this is going to be on the video if we don't do it on the stage. Do you mind just coming up here? And I want you to find someone, and I want you to make that shape of a heart and look them in the eyes and remember who you're looking at. I am looking at someone who is made in God's image, uh, formed fearfully and preciously in their mother's womb. The one who the creator of the universe calls beloved. Uh, try and get over the giggles. I, I really want you to try and do this. Look, look, look at another person in the eyes. Get over the giggles if you can. All right, try and do it silently. All right, look silently and remember who you're looking at. And maybe even think in your mind, child of God, may you be well. Mm. Pay attention to what it feels like in your heart to look at that person with eyes of compassion. And now I want you to pay attention. Keep looking in their eyes. Yeah, keep doing it. I want you to pay attention to what it feels like in your heart knowing that this person is looking at you thinking that you're beloved, acknowledging that. Let that sink in. You're a beloved child of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm. All right, you can put your hands down, and if you need to, hug it out, all right? <laughs> Thank you, man. So, you may be seated. We got a taste of that heart of Jesus there, and if we're going to see transformation happen in our closest relationships, we need to learn to look at, at one another with that heart. Um, most of us have been hurt by people in our lives, and it's very, it can be very difficult when we think of them or we are with them to see them in that same way that we were, we were, we were trying to experience there. I've, uh, it came as a surprise to me that the people who have hurt me most have identified as Christians, for one thing, and they've often been the people who I've been closest to, who I trusted and thought would treat me better, right? And so my first reaction when I feel that, why didn't you love me? Why did you say that to me? Why did you treat me like that? The rage and resentment comes up. I see some nodding of heads like, you know what I'm talking about here. And it's, it, one of our great tasks in our, in our uh, growth and development is to develop compassion towards your parents, siblings, ex-spouse, uh, children, anyone, that, um, people in your faith community who have misunderstood or hurt you and move from that eye of judgment to a heart of compassion towards them. Uh, you maybe heard this before. I, I find it really uh, speaks the truth about, th about things. Uh, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping somebody else gets sick and dies. 
right? It exhausts our bodies, it wears us out, it steals our joy. And so one of the, the ways of Jesus that will help us experience more satisfaction in our relationships if, is if we can work through that process of letting go. Earlier this year, I was in Aboriginal Australia, way up in a very arid, dry area, and I got a chance to be with an Aboriginal church community, and we spent a Sunday reflecting on the way of compassion from the gospel. And at, in the, um, in the, after our gathering, or kind of at the end of our gathering, people in that community who were related by blood and had been in church together for many years felt, felt conviction, felt invited, and said, I got to make things right. And they got up and they walked across the room with tears streaming down their cheeks and they said, I've been wrong all these years or I've been holding resentment towards you and um, will you forgive me? They reconciled with each other and saw some healing happen. And so maybe today there is uh, someone that you, um, you're in the process of letting go of. Um, or maybe today there's, there's someone, when you think about it, you know you've done wrong by them. And it would be powerful you for you to go to them and say, I want to just apologize for the ways that I, I wasn't helpful to you or I was hurtful in your life. It takes a lot of courage, but you can be part of their healing by doing that. I've done that with each of my children. I've done it with my wife because I can look back and say, I didn't love you in the way that you deserve to be loved. And I want to name that, and I don't want that to be between us anymore. You feel me? Is this making sense? Um, so practicing letting go. Uh, where are you in the process of understanding and forgiving parents, siblings, exes, and others for their mistakes and limitations? I'm convinced that, um, that our parents did the best they could to love us, but they had, they had limits and they had wounds that affected their ability to be present to us, and so it's powerful to let go. Two things that have helped me with this. One is the kind of speech I practice. And I've taken on times where I realize I, I practice resentment by how I talk. And if I make a commitment to practice positive speech, it makes it easier for me to let go of resentment. Second thing is, I pray for the person that I feel resentment towards. And, um, and so if I'm struggling with that, if their name comes up in conversation, if I see a picture of them and I start to feel that tightening, um, then I say for the next seven days, I have to pray for God's blessing in their life because I can't pray for their good and be resentful at the same time. I see some nodding of heads like there's some wisdom in this room that you've had to do the, this step and do this work. And so uh, talk to each other about it. Help, help, help each other know how to do that. A second thing from the Beatitudes that helps us with being transformed in our, in our relationships is where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. And the reason why I put up this slide like this is that I think often when we look at the, um, the injustice in our world and the struggles in our own lives, our default tendency is to go, I can't be any, the world can't be any different than it is. It's really broken and corrupt. And I'm broken and corrupt. 
I can't be any different than I am. And we sort of throw our hands up in the air and we conveniently pick scriptures that help justify this. The world's going to get worse. Um, I'm just a miserable sinner. And this is not an accurate telling of what scripture says about you and I. Psalm 8 says, you were, you, were, um, you were made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you, 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 you are the light of the world. We are powerful beings who shape the world by our choices. We're not helpless and we're not hopeless and we're not trying to do this alone. The power of the resurrection is available to us and part of our journey is learning to live um, and access that power, cooperate with what God's trying to do in us. So I told this story yesterday, but it's good enough. I'm going to say it again today. Um, years ago, there was a stranger that used to come to my apartment in San Francisco, walk right in the door without even knocking, and start being mean to my family. Pick up that back backpack and why are these dishes here? Put them, put them in the kitchen. And what are you doing? You're supposed to be doing your homework right now. And my family would be like, all of us would be like, who is this stranger? Why do they think they could come into our house and wreck the vibe like this? And um, pretty soon it happened enough that my kids gave this stranger a nickname they started calling him Krabby Dad. And I know it's daylight savings and your clock is off a little bit, but just in case you're not quite getting the joke, I'm Krabby Dad. I'm the stranger. And I would get like this, just, ah, furious, raging. And even in the moment, I didn't want to be like that. And I would sometimes say, serenity now. Or, or I, I would say, God, I don't want to be like this. Help me to be a loving spouse and parent. And my prayer was never immediately or magically answered. I was disappointed. And uh, around that time, I was spending a lot of time with uh, somebody by the name of Dallas Willard, who has written a lot on how does transformation happen. And what he suggested is that... Um, we sometimes get caught in an all-or-nothing way of thinking about our transformation, that it's all God, that we're just sitting back going, God, make me a loving parent and partner. I'm just, I'm going to kick back. I can't do it because I'm helpless and hopeless, and just wait for it to come. But, the, um, but Scripture says something different. Scripture says, uh, Philippians, it says, continue to work out your salvation because it's God who works in you to will and to act according to God's good purpose. Um, and so I was in a group at the time where we were each trying to work on our struggles. And our question was, where do you feel stuck? What is causing, uh, that, that you're responsible for that's causing pain in your relationships. And I said, for me, it's crabby dad. And so in that group, they said, what could you do to surrender your mind and your body back to God? Like according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is kind of the theme verse for this whole series, so that you could experience the wholeness and transformation that God desires for you. And so I had to, I had to look back uh, through my life and say, when does crabby dad show up? Um, number one, I realized it's not an accident. 
Uh, Dallas Willard would say, you've trained your whole life to become the kind of person you are. So however you are, it's not like Britney Spears, whoops, I did it again. You, you, planned, you, you, you planned and practiced for the life that you have. You rehearsed thoughts, maybe false thoughts, maybe distorted thoughts, and you developed habits in your body, and your brain and the basal ganglia remembered those things. So I looked back and I said, what, is happen- what, am- what are the choices I'm making in the two weeks before Krabby Dad shows up at my house? And on reflection, I realized it's when Mark Scandrett, that's me, works too many hours a day, too many days a week, doesn't take a Sabbath. And he gets into this pattern out of that fatigue where he's like, uh, at the end of the day, he's exhausted, so he needs some salty snacks, he needs some sugar, and then he, um, he, needs to, he needs to kind of veg out for a while, so he stays up late binge-watching something. Then he doesn't get up on time to spend time with God or to exercise, and then he fuels on coffee and sugar all day. And pretty soon, if, you, if, if Mark Skandrat does that long enough, he is going to go into rage and impatience. Why is he working all the time? What's, what's driving him? A false belief and thinking that says you're only significant because of what you can earn or achieve. So I realized if I wanted to not be crabby dad anymore, if I wanted to cooperate with God's work in me, that I would need to develop some new habits of thought and some new habits of body. And so I made a commitment to every day get up, go for a walk, and remind myself, I'm God's child. God loves me. God is pleased with me. So I don't have to run around trying to prove myself in the world. And then I made a commitment to lower caffeine, lower sugar, and a commitment to exercise and to take a Sabbath day. And gradually but dramatically, crabby dad stopped showing up at our house. In fact, my kids were like, we haven't seen that guy for a long time. We don't miss him. But it's cool that he's not here anymore. And I involve my family in that. And this can be a powerful practice for the people that you live with or love, where you are honest about your struggles. You say, oops, I did it again. But I don't want to keep doing that. I want to surrender myself to a process of transformation of my mind and body and take on practices that will be life-giving for me about that. And um, so I'm not going to say that Krabby Dad never, ever shows up anymore, but um, he's, he very rarely makes an appearance. And it marked a real shift in our family life where my kids look back and say, we remember a raging dad, and we saw that our dad owned his struggle and took steps to experience transformation. Last beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor? Poverty is when you don't have enough or you feel like you don't have enough. Something's lacking. And I think we started this experience of feeling like we didn't have enough right when we came out of our mother's bodies into the world. Um, If you've ever witnessed a birth, you know you see this person. Most of us don't remember it happening to ourselves, so we have to see, see it happen to someone else. But you come out and it's cold. And you're having to suck oxygen for the first time. And, and you, feel, you feel distant from what's comforting. And so many, most babies clench their fists and they scream, ah, out of this sense of not enough. Something's missing. 
And we maybe needed to feel that so that we'd suck air in and search for food and um, long for the comfort of mother. But if we stay in this posture of clenched fists, it drives us away from community and wholeness. So I want you to do this with me. Close your hands like this as tight as you can and just hold it there for a little while. This is what I would call the posture of scarcity. Something is lacking and we grab desperately for what we hope will fill us up or satisfy us. And it's the cause of great inequity in our world. It's a mentality of more, bigger, better that is driving our culture, I'm convinced of. And it exhausts us. And it takes us away from the community that we so desperately long for. I'm going to invite you to now relax your hands. The shift into the kingdom of God is if we can learn to go from that posture of scarcity to a posture of trust. To receive what we need from our creator with thanks. To ask, seek, and knock for what we lack and to share with one another. Um, I'm convinced that if we don't make conscious choices about how we relate to time and money, the forces of a consumeristic and materialistic culture will make most of our decisions for us. I asked the question yesterday in our workshop, what are the challenges for family and community relationships in the Denver area? First thing that comes up is, man, it's expensive, and there's a lot of a drive towards more and bigger and better that's pulling families apart, that's making it hard to connect. People are too busy to to be in a relationship. And so we really need to wrestle with finding a a kingdom rhythm about our relationship with the time and money and stuff. How you spend your time is how you spend your life. And how you spend your life is shaped by economic choices. And so the question for us as kingdom seekers, seeking the way of Jesus is, what's a right-sized life? Where instead of saying more, thinking in our hearts, more, bigger, better, instead we think, I'm content, I'm satisfied, and I have time and I have resources to share with others. There is a right-sized life that will, can take us out of the hurry and busyness and striving that's epidemic in the culture that we're part of. And I wish I had more time to say more about that, but... Well, you have a chance to explore that further. And so this beatitude is inviting us into a posture. Put your hands out like this. A posture of contentment and trust in the abundance that the creator provides. It invites us to live and pray this prayer. You can say it with me. Lead us in the way of trust. Here's my conclusion. Family is the place where we first get, uh, get our first picture of what love is and who God is. But that first picture of what love is was a bit distorted, and that first picture of who God is was distorted. And so, um, our, um, and no matter how much love a parent or a community can give, that love is never enough. And I think about, um, this is my precious daughter, Haley. She came out of her mother's body. I held her in my arms. I... I didn't even know that such a depth of love existed, that affection that I felt for her. But it wasn't more than a year or two before I could see her heart closing, even when my heart was open. 
And it actually made me think back to my family, and I thought, maybe the same thing happened with me, that my parents sincerely wanted to love me, but because of my own brokenness, I wasn't always able to even receive the love that they had to give to me. And, um, and so our family and community experiences put us on the journey and search for a true parent and a true home. No matter how much we try to love each other, no matter in this community, no matter how much we try and love each other and our families, we still have this hole because, we're, because no other human being can, can fill that hole of, of love and belonging that we so desperately need. And so the trajectory is for us to finally move towards true parent and true home. The only being who can satisfy that longing that we have for belonging is the creator of the universe. That's what we're designed for. And this is why in John 15, Jesus said, live in me, make your home in me. And why Moses, thinking about his parents and grandparents and ancestors and his own people said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in every generation. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me for a moment. And if we go back to that thought about how we come into the world with clenched hands, desperate for love and safety and security, and then remember that the gospel invites us to move from that to opening our hands to receive the love that God has for us. Open your hands like this. Close your eyes. And I want to remind you, this is a safe universe to live in. Nothing can separate you from the eternal love of the creator of the universe. Not loss, not mental health issues, not even death can separate you from that love. And your creator is here with you now and will be with you through whatever comes. Your true eternal parent. Lord, teach us to, to live um, as your children in the fullness of, of your love as our, our true parent and our true home. just want to sing this refrain. Uh, any family member 